This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. In late March of this year, I travelled to Canberra, Australia, to deliver a keynote address at the Australian Digital Alliance's 2019 Copyright Forum. The ADA is a leading voice on copyright issues in Australia, and its annual Copyright Forum brings together government, creators, education, libraries, and the broader public to explore emerging copyright issues. This year's event included innovative filmmakers, the president of the Australian Society of Authors, European Parliament MEP Julia Rita, as well as leading academics, trade negotiators, government policy experts, and many others. My keynote talk focused on the Canadian copyright experience, using real data to dispel misleading claims about the impact of Canada's 2012 reforms. Given that it's a holiday weekend, with many celebrating Easter or Passover, this week's Law Bites podcast takes a different approach, with a Law Bites lecture, an audio recording of the ADA keynote. So I've only been here a couple of days on this particular trip, but already on a number of occasions, people have asked, you know, what's going on in Canada? And it's not the, like, what's going on? Uh, You know, how cold is it? It's like, what's going on? Uh, And it is a reference point, as I think many people will know, to uh, what has, I think, been a, a pretty successful campaign from some to suggest that Canada made changes to the copyright law a number of years ago, and that impact has been dire for authors and publishers. Uh, And I'm here to talk a bit about my perspective based on new evidence that's come forward in the last year that I think provides at least a fuller picture on what's been taking place. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about what we did a number of years ago, just quickly, for those that aren't familiar with what some of those legislative reforms looked like, as well as some important Supreme Court of Canada cases. Uh, Also a quick highlight on some of the the leading kinds of cases that have taken place since, but spend most of my time talking specifically about the issue around educational copying, what is actually taking place, what that impact is, and then, as as you point out, trying to try to take some of that and think about what it means for the future of reforms, certainly here in Canada and in a range of, of other places. And so there is no doubt that over the last number of years we have seen, certainly internationally uh, and here in Australia, people looking at the Canadian experience as being suggestive of a warning of what what not to do, the claims that a more flexible approach with respect to fair dealing, whether that's in terms of adding certain purposes, which is what Canada did a number of years ago, or the more broad liberal interpretation of the fair dealing provision as our Supreme Court of Canada does, uh, Supreme Court of Canada did a number of years ago, the claim is that that's had some, some potentially some positive impacts, but some negative ones as well. So what exactly did we do in 2012? Well, there was a lot of reform, and I know that Australia has also been home to a lot of studies and attempts at reform. The same was certainly true in Canada. The 2012 reforms, referred to as the Copyright Modernization Act, was the result of the better part of at least of a decade of bills that were introduced and subsequently failed, national consultations, and then two years on the final bill, two years of a legislative process with various hearings and the like. And it was an attempt to engage in what was certainly the most notable update of Canadian copyright law in a number of decades, arguably the biggest one that we'd 
we'd had in, in nearly a century. Uh, it included things like an expansion of fair dealing. So Canada at the time it had five purposes within the fair dealing clause, research, private study, news reporting, criticism, and review. These are, will be familiar to many. We added three, parody, satire, and education. We added a whole series of provisions as well that were designed to, in a sense, really update or modernize the law. Format shifting uh, was included. Time shifting, like making recordings off your VCR if you still happen to have one, or your PVR. Uh, the provisions for backup copies was now addressed. We had, I think, a pretty innovative provision that I'll highlight again in just a moment around non-commercial user-generated content, with the government taking the position that, that that kind of remix, mashup sorts of works that one finds on YouTube and elsewhere were important expressions that ought to be protected. They didn't want to see things like the Lens case that we saw uh, take place in the United States where people get sued for uh, or face the prospect of being sued for videos uh, of their kids dancing to a, to a song. And so there's specific protection uh, for that kind of work. There's also a specific exception for publicly available materials on the internet uh, for, within an education context. The notion that teachers should not be afraid to post a web page in their classroom, uh, that that surely ought to be permissible and the exception is designed to address that. So there's a range of those kinds of issues. There was, there was also the anti-circumvention rules, the attempt to implement the WIPO internet treaties that, that we had reference to earlier this morning with largely US style DMCA type uh, approach. And we had also a number of issues with respect to provisions with respect to enforcement. So for example, we had an enabler provision that was designed and is designed specifically to target sites uh, whose primary purpose is to facilitate infringement, trying to ensure that there are real penalties to go after those kinds of websites. And, the suggestions or the notion that somehow Canada is a piracy haven without the ability to target that, this was a provision designed to counter that and indeed debunk it. Uh, we had specific provisions with respect to notice and takedown, or in the Canadian approach, we haven't adopted notice and takedown, instead adopted something known as notice and notice, um, which was seen as both being privacy enhancing for the subscriber, but also more effective in terms of trying to educate the public about the contours and limits of copyright and to ensure that they were aware that they might not be quite as anonymous as they thought, that the, if they did engage in infringing activity, that might often be seen and that in fact there were potential consequences as a result. And we also established some limits on statutory damages in non-commercial cases. So we have statutory damages like say the United States does, it's at a slightly lower amount, 20,000 per infringement, but created a cap in cases of non-commercial infringement of $5,000 uh, maximum for all infringements. It was designed first, I think, and foremost to ensure that families didn't lose their home or face the risk of losing their home or their life savings off a file sharing lawsuit. But even beyond that, it would cover museums, the education sector, and others so that the risk analysis that they might engage in for operators that I think we would universally view as seeking to comply with the law when they engaged in that risk analysis, they wouldn't feel the, that the risk was, in a sense, betting the entire organization on a, on a copyright decision. Now, alongside those statutory reforms, we also, the Supreme Court of Canada, become very active on copyright. And in fact, two weeks after the law was, was enacted, the Supreme Court of Canada released what's become known as the copyright pentology. Five copyright cases released in a single day. And as part of that, we had the court affirm, yet again, that, that ex so-called exceptions like fair dealing are actually users' rights. And the court emphasized the need for a balance between creators' rights on the one hand 
and users' rights on the other. It talked about the need for technological neutrality as well, something that has also come up repeatedly, that notion of, of trying to ensure that the law can be applicable in similar ways even as the technology changes. There's a, a whole series of cases that are well worth your time, and there's actually a book that I edited. It's available under an open access license that you're free to download with contributions from across the spectrum in Canada looking at those various decisions. Now, What's taken place in the years since? We have had a number of fair dealing cases, including, I think, most notably, the York University case versus access copyright. And I'll come back to that case uh, a little bit in just a moment, but that is, access copyright is our leading copyright collective in the education sector. Uh, they've been embroiled in litigation with York University, a Toronto-based uh, university, one of the larger universities in Canada, over, fair, over a couple of issues, including the fair dealing guidelines that York had established. In a trial decision issued about a year and a half ago, the trial judge in our federal court ruled in favor of access copyright, ruled that the guidelines that had been adopted uh, were not compliant, uh, and it was without question a complete win for the copyright collective. I think everybody recognized that that case was not going to start and end at the federal court, and just a couple of weeks ago, our federal court of appeal spent two days of hearings on an appeal of that decision. I think that Quite candidly, both sides would acknowledge that there are some fair dealing errors by the judge. The question perhaps will be whether or not there are enough to change the analysis as to whether or not this was fair dealing or not. Uh, but regardless of even what the Federal Court of Appeal has to say, I think it's a pretty reasonable guess that one side or the other, perhaps both, will seek leave to appeal and this will ultimately end up at the Supreme Court of Canada. Now we've had other cases along the way as well, some interesting uh, fair dealing related cases. We've had other kinds of copyright cases. Actually, the Supreme Court is hearing a copyright case next Friday. It's the uh, Keatley case, which involves crown copyright related questions and uh, questions as to whether or not land surveyors have copyright in their, in their works. This is an issue that Australia's already dealt with. In Canada, we have it. And it's, a, it's an example of the kind of case where seemingly everybody profits except for the artist, uh, or the creator in this case, being the surveyors. And I've, I should disclose I've been working with the, the attorneys for the surveyors, arguing that in this context they aren't being appropriately compensated. There's revenue that's generated for the digitizer and for the intermediary that makes this available. Um, there's revenue, in a sense, for the government that has licensed this out. Uh, but the underlying works, of course, are the surveyors, and they get nothing. In fact, it's even worse. Uh, a lower court appeal argued that the mere, mere act of filing their land survey, as they are required to do under the legislation, has the effect of transferring the copyright in their work to the government. And so they not only are not compensated, but they lose their copyright altogether, something that I think is fundamentally wrong. And we've also had uh, some statutory reform. So notwithstanding attempts to review the law, we have had some changes on low-hanging fruit, as it were. Just about everybody from all perspectives took the view that our Copyright Board of Canada doesn't function particularly well, and the government's made a whole series of changes to try to make it more accessible and more efficient. We've also had a term extension for sound recordings, an issue that I can get into during questions if you like. And we even had some changes to that notice and notice provision that I referenced a moment ago, it was designed to educate, but uh, to the surprise and I think disappointment of the government, what they found happening very early on was that anti-piracy companies were using the ability to send along hundreds of thousands or even millions of notices to subscribers and include within it a demand to pay uh, a settlement under the threat of you still might be sued. And that was not the intent of the system. 
the, we had many unsuspecting people, in fact, both the government and even some rights holders cautioned that, there was, they did, that the rights holders did not know who these people were and that, in fact, there was no obligation to settle, but yet many unsuspecting people clicked. In doing so, they actually identified themselves for the first time and at the same time then paid hundreds of dollars to settle, and the government has attempted to dial that back by removing the obligation of internet providers to forward a non-compliant notice and, and stating in the legislation that a non-compliant notice includes one that includes a settlement demand. This is not designed to be a free mechanism to send thousands of, of these settlement demands. So we have seen some amount of statutory reform, and of course there is also in the Canadian context lots taking place in the trade world, the Marrakesh Treaty, with the CPTPP, we've got now the USMCA with the United States as well. So lots and lots taking place. Um, the rhetoric, as I say, behind a lot of this has been, with respect, that 80% of licensing uh, income has simply disappeared. And that's, this is, of course, especially the case with respect to the issue around authors and educational copying. I'm going to try to give you the data on what has been presented before our copyright review. Because one of the things that was included in those 2012 reforms was a requirement that there be a review of Canadian copyright law every five years. Now, I have to admit that I didn't think that this was a particularly good idea. I spent a lot of time being engaged in the last copyright review and I was kind of happy to get to move on to something else. Uh, but if you are engaged in copyright review uh, every five years, it means that reassessing and lobbying around copyright quite literally never ends. Uh, now that's what's happened in Canada. The, the lobbying around copyright is, is a 24-7 all season uh, activity because there is always the expectation that there will be this review and then the prospect uh, of new legislative change. So I think that is certainly a, a problem with, the, with this system. The benefit though, uh, which I think will become apparent for them in a moment, is that it has also ensured that we finally have real current up-to-date data on what's actually taking place and that we can move beyond in some instances, very old data, and instead be able to engage in a more evidence-based discussion on what's taking place in the marketplace, and then, if, if necessary, adjust as we see fit. Now, the reality on, on a lot of these issues is, also, is complicated, and uh, I can get into any of the other number of issues uh, as we go, if you like. For example, the non-commercial non UGC provision that I mentioned a moment ago hasn't worked out quite as well as, as we would have hoped. And yeah, Julia Rita gave an example of that actually in her talk where she talked about um, the German video that was silenced via content ID. We've seen the same thing happen in Canada. And the example I provide is a, is a deeply personal one. My daughter was a participant on a program known as March of the Living, um, which is a program where high school students visit the concentration camps in Poland for a week and then go to Israel for a week afterward. Um, it was a, an affecting program for her. She became a leader in the organization in my city in Ottawa uh, and was asked to pull together a video uh, recounting the experience of the couple dozen teenagers that participated. And they had videos and interviews of all of these people. Uh, she pulled all of that together, had some underlying music, put it up on YouTube, preparing to present it at a Holocaust Memorial Day in the community where 500 people were scheduled to attend. Uh, and that morning when they did the test run, they found that the entire video, including all the interviews, had been muted uh, because of the underlying music had been identified by Content ID. Now, they're able to fix that in time, but in a country where we specifically had a provision to protect non-commercial user-generated content, that sort of thing should not be happening. 
And Google, in their appearance as part of the copyright review, openly acknowledged that no, they have not changed their system as part of YouTube to accommodate the Canadian approach, which I think tells us something about some of the challenges that smaller countries may have in getting large global operators to make adjustments to their platform to reflect some of the different changes that we have within the law. I mentioned just a moment ago the issues around lawsuits, which we thought would go away in Canada, but they, they largely haven't. We had last year a, a very active debate over the prospect of website blocking with a proposal to allow for website blocking without actually any court oversight at all. The notion was that there would be a new internet piracy review agency and our telecoms regulator would be required to, in a sense, re review or rubber stamp recommendations for those, for those blocking of potential websites. Uh, ultimately, the regulator said this was not their issue. This was not a telecom issue. It was a copyright issue. And it remains up to the government to decide whether or not they want to pursue anything. And Canada, I suppose like Australia and many other countries, faces oftentimes difficult pressures from larger trading partners when it comes to trade agreements. And we concluded a new NAFTA, sometimes called the USMCA, if you're Donald Trump, called the CUSMA, if you're Justin Trudeau. Uh, but regardless of what you call it, it includes, uh, in Canada's case, copyright term extension, something that Canada had successfully resisted for a very long time, being compliant with the burn standard of life plus 50. And if this comes into effect, we'll be required to extend to life plus 70. Now, into all of that, comes the parliamentary review. And so in December of 2017, the two ministers responsible for copyright in Canada wrote to the chair of the Standing Committee on Industry, Science and Technology, which would be the committee responsible for copyright, asking them to conduct a review. They provided a four-page letter, and if you take a look, you see that it is a well-crafted letter that seeks to address just about every stakeholder's potential concerns and thoughts on copyright. They were sending the message they wanted to ensure that the committee heard from just about everybody. And last year, they conducted dozens of hearings with a couple of hundred witnesses and roughly the same number of policy briefs submitted by, 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 by interested parties from across the spectrum on all the various issues. It actually started with educational copying and publishing, but moved on into the music sector, into audiovisual works and uh, movies, television shows, and then later to a whole series of, of independent academics and other, other experts. I appeared before the committee towards the very end of the process. And I would argue that especially within the context of educational copying, I think there's three trends that just about everybody agrees upon. The first is that copyright collective revenues, access copyright in particular, their revenues have declined. There is no debating that those numbers are down. This is taken from their annual report, and it, as you can see, indicates that educational revenues have almost entirely disappeared, down 89%, uh, and that the amount that they are distributing has declined, not by quite as much, but still by uh, a very sizable percentage, to be sure. And so there is, I don't think, much dispute, there isn't any dispute, that uh, that's what's taken place for that particular copyright collective. At the same time, the data that we have, in this case from Statistics Canada, the government-based uh, statistical agency, tells us that Canadian publisher profit margins and revenues from education have increased since 2012. Now the data, the latest data that they've made available was in 2018, it was exactly a year ago and it goes up to 2016, so it isn't as current as we might otherwise like, I think we have to wait one more year 
for the most recent data because they publish on a biannual basis. But you can see on a, from a profit margin perspective, profit margins for Canadian publishers have increased since the 2012 reforms. Education revenues have increased. They only started providing those in 2014, and they have increased uh, since 20, from 2014 to 2016. And so the numbers are, are not all that bad when it comes to the Canadian publishers in terms of where their, revenue, where their revenues are headed. The third trend that I think everybody acknowledges is that education is spending more on licensing. That's right, more. So notwithstanding the claims that people don't spend any more on licensing, in fact, everybody acknowledges that education is spending more. Here's, again, data provided by any number of institutions, some of, use, some of you who use open data so that you can find this directly on their websites, that point to the expenditures. Here's from the Dalhousie, it's a university in Halifax. Their increased expenditures in the library, this is from Ryerson, a Toronto-based university. And this is the Stats, Stats Can own data, we should get new data actually fairly soon, that highlights that there has been a significant uptick over time in terms of what libraries are spending, and we'll talk a bit about why that matters in just a moment. In fact, on journals alone, because in this instance it is almost journals alone, despite the emergence of open access for so much of online journal publishing, what we find is that Canadian universities and colleges have come together to spend literally tens of millions of dollars on subscription fees. They have a consortium known as CRKN, the Canadian Research Knowledge Network. They also put up their, their data in the 2016-2017 academic year, they spent collectively more than $80 million on licensing. This is just for uh, the major journals. 90, 90, high 90s as a percentage of this is on specific access to journals. And of course, I think for those that follow this issue, you know that we have now seen whole countries as well as large states like California say this is not a model that we think is either right or sustainable uh, and we may see some real changes take place. So the question when you see this kind of data, and the question that in fact was asked directly by a number of the members of parliament, is how do you reconcile this? How do you on the one hand say that you are spending more, if the question is directed to education, how do you say that you are on the one hand spending more on licensing, and on the other hand look at the access copyright numbers and say why are they not receiving the licensing revenues that they once did? Well, I think here's the answer. And even before I get into that answer, I think the one other point that is important to make, which is why I think the data that we have is so important, is that much of the debate that's existed in Canada, at least up until now, has had deeply flawed, dated data. So for example, one often hears, this is a story that you often see, don't steal my words, says a, says a Winnipeg-based author, more than 60 million pages are copied for free each year. It's one of the standard lines that we have seen repeated again and again in Canada. One of the issues is let's dig down and actually see where even does this 60 million, 600 million, sorry, page number come from. Where does 600 million pages come from? It turns out it relies entirely on data that predates the 2012 reforms. In fact, for the majority of those copies, the data is as old as 2005. And so we're talking about 2005 copying data that was used in a copyright board hearing a number of years later and which the copyright board itself said that the ability for parties to rely on this copying data uh, is no longer tenable on a go-forward basis. They recognize that your ability to rely on data that predates really the change that we've seen from a digital perspective, much less these legislative reforms, calls into question the reliability of that kind of information. 
So we're, we, what we have to deal with, I would argue, is real data. And we still don't have good real data about what's taking place in terms of pure copying. But we do have a real good sense, uh, of especially around some copying, but even more around licensing. Okay. So what, in a nutshell, has taken place, and I'm going to try to unpack it over the next few minutes, is a dramatic shift, and it is probably true in many of your institutions as well, of one that is di moving digitally from traditionally printed course packs to course management systems, CMS, sometimes referred to as learning management systems, LMS. And the implications of this, I think, go far beyond what a lot of people anticipated when we start thinking about, let's throw my course up online and make these materials available online. Now, if I start with access copyright, which now talks about and is investing more in things like blockchain and the like, so it's talking about the uh, desire to, to become more current with emerging technologies, its history starts, as do many of these kinds of collectives, with the photocopy machine. And the, the model was pretty straightforward. Institutions had large stacks of books. People would take materials within those books, create printed course packs, then sell those printed course packs to individuals. And the argument was that uh, there ought to be a fee associated with that as part of those payments that would go back to compensate uh, the authors and the publishers whose work was being used in those stacks. Now, even in that, image, that, that vision of what takes place, when we look at what takes place today, I have to recognize that things have, have changed, even if you don't get in necessarily to all the digital stuff I'm about to talk to in a few minutes, that I think call into question both the relevance of that particular license as well as the value that it provides to educational institutions. So first, for example, on that particular picture of the stacks, I'm going to venture to guess that there are any number of books that are more than 20 years old. You can go into almost any university, go into the library here, you're going to find lots and lots of works, some of which may be current, many of which that are decades old. Access copyright does not compensate for works that are more than 20 years old. And the reason for that is it says that its, its research finds that they simply aren't copied in any significant way. So this is taken directly from their own website where they say their own statistical analysis tells us that books that are published more than 20 years ago highly unlikely to be copied under the license. Well, in a pre-digital era, even in the 2000s, you still were talking about a fair number of works. But if we think about now 20th anniversary of ADA coinciding with the move towards digital, more and more works are either born digital or in this last 20 years are part of that digital era in which we're not talking necessarily about the same kind of copying anymore. And in fact, just about anything now from the late 90s on, the argument is, goes uncompensated. I'd argue, and, and I will in a moment, that site licenses actually do a better job of compensating those artists than do the access copyright license, because they may still receive compensation under site licenses for those older works, whereas you don't get any compensation when it comes to the, to the access copyright license. They also do not cover born digital works. And so if you are a creator who writes blogs or online in e-journals or publishes as e-books, you're not even entitled to become an affiliate of access copyright if your work is done on a born digital basis. It is truly born in print, uh, that's not to say that they aren't trying to have a license to say we'll cover CMS, um, but, this, the, but it is very much one born of print. And in that print world, we had, for example, UBC making clear that our books are being used less. Indeed, many of our books are being put into a storage facility where they are safely not being copied. <laughs> in fact, 
we have, and it's, a, it's true at my own institution at the University of Ottawa, it is true at, ma at many institutions, decommissioning of books, uh, moving them either off-site become, has become a major part of what's taking place within at least Canadian university libraries as space is freed up for other things and the shift to digital because most universities now have, born, have digital first policies where they don't purchase the print books anymore at all, they purchase digital books. The reality is that a book-based model for licensing has far less relevance than it once did. Now, all of that unsurprisingly moves us to a world where course packs are just far less relevant today than they once were. So data from the review, let's say from the University of Calgary, tells us that for that institution, and we're not talking about a small university in this case, they have under 60 course packs printed total for the entire university. Uh, think about the number of courses they have, less than 60. In fact, they project that this year there will be more courses that use open educational resources as the basis for their materials on an exclusive basis than use printed course packs. UBC tells a similar kind of story. Here's the, here's the amount that, that course packs generate in UBC, and you can see a precipitous decline since 2012, not because of fair dealing, but simply because as the investments move towards digital, students coming with laptops were expecting increasingly that the materials we made available on a digital basis. The course pack is just a relic that isn't much used anymore. And in fact, what is, I think, truly amazing, and Ryerson put this forward, and perhaps I think for many frightening, is that what we are talking about in a digital first era is one where now the e-books in some institutions outnumber the print books. Ryerson University says they have more e-books licensed than they have print books. Now, what does the copying in that kind of world look like? This is from a study that Access Copyright did as part of one of its hearings before the Copyright Board. And what you find is that Access Copyright itself acknowledges, in, at least in the study that it commissioned, that course packs are now a small part of the pie. By far the, by far the largest piece of the pie here is CMS, are the course management systems. You can see there's a pie there for some handouts. There's a pie for um, hyperlinks. And there's, a, and there's the, that one piece of the pie there still for course packs. But it is a small part, and that was even still several years ago, Given where trends are, there's little doubt that that part of the pie has shriveled ever further. It also, I think, matters when we think about what is in these course packs. So this also, from a study conducted for Access Copyright as part of one of its hearings before the Copyright Board, and what you find is the kinds of materials that are included in course packs differ significantly from the kinds of, books, of, kinds of materials that are made available in CMS. So if, we can, if you could take a look at that, you could see that the course pack material in this particular study was almost exclusively books. Although, of course, in the overall amount of copying, it's fairly small. CMS is a far larger part of the copying that this study for access copyright found. Now, what's the majority source there? Journal articles. And I told you just a few minutes ago, $80 million a year from Canadian universities paying for journal articles that doesn't even include the open access side of it. That's what's being copied and not, uh, not the underlying books in, the, in, in terms of the largest part of the materials that are included uh, within those CMS compensated directly through site licensing not, not, and without the need for a collective license. And so I think the question that has come up for many Canadian institutions looking at this changing, uh, changing world, looking at what the access copyright license offered and what others offered is what if there was something better? 
as the shift takes place, and from Universities Canada, you can see the shift is this true proverbial 80-20. Back in 2002, 2003, almost aligning when the copying data took place, 21% of the acquisition expenditures being digital, almost 80% being print. Fast forward, in this case, to 2015, 81% of the expenditures are on digital, only 19% of the expenditures are on print. We've had a complete flip with many institutions saying we will buy digital first and indeed digital only unless there is a compelling reason to buy or to acquire a print-based uh, print version. Now, why that matters is that the access copyright license is fundamentally about reproduction. What it assumes is that you already have the materials, you now want to make those materials available in course packs, potentially even in course management systems, and in order to make those copies, either direct physical copies or in the case of a CMS, make it available to the students, the argument is uh, you need a license to make those copies. But the licenses that are provided, as you'll see in just a moment, under site licenses, go one step further. Because reproduction is only good if you already have access to those works to begin with. But if you are buying digital first, what you are buying, in effect, is both access to the works and, in many instances with these licenses, the right to reproduce it or make it available. From a pure value proposition, it's, it's unquestionably better. Because now, in the previous era, I had to buy the underlying book, let's say, and then buy a license to reproduce it. Now, in one single license, I get access to the work and I get the ability to make it available in, copy, in, in usually multi-user basis uh, to, to my underlying users, including for teaching purposes. So the way this plays out, and this is an example from, from the University of Calgary and their submission, take this particular book here, Oil. Um, you could, in the past, buy the book, pay the license fee uh, if you were part of, say, Access Copyright, and then have the ability to copy a certain percentage of that and make it available to students. Now, in this case, they note that they've got a class of 400 people, but part of the problem with an access copyright license is that every student on campus pays. Not the 400 students that are accessing this. Every single student pays the fee. Part of the, uh, part of the presumption is that, well, if you're not copying oil, perhaps you're copying something else. But we all know, in my own institution, in the law faculty, that's just not true. In the law faculty, we don't make any copies, typically, that would be covered by the license, and that is often going to be true in the engineering departments, in many of the science departments, it's gonna be true in the, in the health and medicine, in many of the areas, the works that are being used are not works of literature and the kinds of works that are often covered by the license, but instead, often journal articles or other kinds of works, or as a father with two kids in engineering schools, they're just buying super expensive texts all the time, it would seem. And so, University of Calgary says, though that was one way we could do it, but here's the other way. We could buy a transactional license, and so we could actually pay directly to the publisher to be able to use two chapters. The cost for a class of, as you can see, for 400, almost 2,500 US. Or available to us under an e-book license for $30 was a copy, was an e-version of the book that we can make available to all users. Similar kind of story they provided with this book here from McGill, McGill Queens University Press, Negotiations in a Vacant Lot. Again, you could buy the book and make it available as you saw fit. Here they talked about a transactional license for two, again, for two chapters, and note that 
The fair dealing guidelines in Canada would say that only one chapter could be copied, so it quite clearly is not covered by fair dealing, and there is no Canadian university that is going to claim they're entitled to make those copies of two chapters without any compensation at all. They know they need some form of permission, and that permission could come by way of a uh, specific transactional license, the cost being $400, or an unlimited license making it available on an unlimited basis to as many students as we like for 150 US. Is it any wonder that universities move into this area adopting ebook licensing when the value proposition says we can pay the necessary license fees and have far greater flexibility in use? In fact, when you look at the numbers that are being spent on ebook licensing, it is, I think, frankly astonishing. The University of Alberta has a full open data site that will tell you to the penny what they spend on every single subscription service, every single uh, ebook basket that they have purchased. In 2017, over a half million dollars for 110,000 Springer ebooks with the ability to use full course chapters, uh, full chapters and course materials. Last year, nearly a million dollars just on three ebook licenses alone, and they spent more than just that, including $675,000 just with Cambridge University Press. Huge expenditures with respect to licensing ebooks, which provides the kind of flexibility they want to use. Now, I recognize this will be almost impossible to see, but this uh, is available on my site. We took a look specifically, together with a couple of students, at what takes place at my own university, the University of Ottawa, which is an interesting place to look when it comes to site licenses, because we're a bilingual institution, so the institution is licensing both English language books as well as French language books. And we wanted to see both what books were being made available under license, under e-license, since, since at that time it was uh, since 1997. We want to know for the last 20 years because those are the materials that we're told are typically copied. And we want to know what's being made available relative to their catalog and then how much of that was actually being licensed by the university. This sort of is an easier one to tell. The top sort of uh, orangey line are the number of ebooks that were available for license. The blue line is the number that are being licensed. In many instances, the university was licensing just about anything that they could get their hands on. If you made it available on an ebook license, the university was going to pay for it. In fact, what we also found interesting is that in a number of instances, you found that there were books that now had multiple ebook licenses. They'd already bought the rights to it, and they effectively rebought the license on a number of addition, additional occasions. Why? Because they're included in different baskets on a non-exclusive basis. And so when you looked in the catalog, you found in several instances there were several versions of an electronic book, all licensed, and in many instances, licensed in perpetuity. Recognize that many of these licenses as perpetual licenses mean that you have paid once, presumably more than you would typically pay on an annual basis, and you now have the right to use that work on a perpetual basis. And so if a publisher says, we have stopped getting revenues or royalties on this book, that's only because they actually sold all future royalties by providing or making available that perpetual license in the first place. Now, as I mentioned, those licenses are, in many instances, just as, just as accessible in terms of usage as the access copyright license. So the, the model license from CRKN talks about using more than, no more than 20% of an individual work or a chapter. And you can use that in the course of instruction at member institutions. The idea that classes are filled with unlicensed materials is simply false. Now, layered on top of that are two other large sources. One is transactional licensing. And I, and I want to pause just to emphasize 
the, the transactional licensing side of it for a couple of reasons. This is all data taken directly out of the copyright review in the last year. Universities like the University of Toronto spend more than a quarter million dollars on transactional licenses. Guelph, more than $100,000. And it goes on and on. This tells us two things. First, the claims that the university community, or the education community, assumes that fair dealing allows them to copy anything that they like without any compensation is with all respect utter bunk. You don't spend a quarter million dollars on a transactional licenses if you believe that you can make copies of those materials by relying on fair dealing. You do it specifically because you know you can't. You know that there are limits to what fair dealing permits. You abide by those limits and when you still want to ensure that you have access to the work and it's not otherwise available under an e-book license that you may have, you spend, and in this case, millions of dollars by Canadian institutions collectively on transactional licenses. One institution, I think, even hammers home this point more, and that's Concordia University. It's a university based in Montreal. Now, in Quebec, the Quebec-based institutions are still part of the collective system. So they pay in not to access copyright, but instead to copyback, the Quebec-based equivalent. Concordia spent $120,000 last year in transactional licenses. Stop for a moment to think what that means. They got the equivalent of the collective license. They got what access copyright, or in this particular case, copyback said, you need to get to cover copying. And they concluded that it actually doesn't cover all the kind of copying that they might want. Because there are limits to those collective licenses as well. It is not a free-for-all when you get a collective license. There are limits on what you're able to do. And so seriously does that institution take its obligations under the law to respect both the licenses and copyright and the copyright law that they go out and obtain licenses even when they have a collective license in place. That's the reality of copying in Canada today. And then on top of all of that, we have the myriad of other materials that are now openly available, whether it's public domain or open access, particularly relevant with respect to the world of journal publication, or open educational resources, or hyperlinking to materials that are otherwise available, which for a time access copyright said universities ought to pay for the right to be able to hyperlink to materials that are otherwise available. And when challenged on the issue by the Copyright Board of Canada, they said, well, we withdraw that particular aspect of the tariff. Because there simply was no credible legal argument that you can charge someone for having a hyperlink or a pointer to where they may find materials online. And the value of all of these materials is significant. UBC says since 2011, at least 155 courses have been using open textbooks or OERs, saving roughly, you can see there's towards the bottom, uh, somewhere between five and seven million dollars uh, in costs for students. These are not unlicensed works. These are works that have been openly licensed and which can be freely used, again, materials, information that's provided directly um, through the copyright review. So what do you end up with in Canada in that kind of digital environment? The University of Lethbridge looked at, their, at the materials in their CMS. That little sliver there is the part that they said might invoke a collective license. Everything else, they said, no, did not involve a collective license covered by other means. Here's the University of Calgary that took a look at their e-learning items. That sliver there is fair dealing. It is not to say that fair dealing is irrelevant. It is relevant and it is used for a certain percentage. But we can see that that percentage is massively overrated relative to the kinds of headlines that you find. It's an important part 
of the process. It's an important part of the puzzle in a sense because that flexibility does play a role. And it's important that we get it right in terms of what that fair dealing means. But that idea that fair dealing has somehow opened the door to just unlimited, uncompensated uses is wholly at odds with the actual experience that we've seen over the last five years. In fact, when we break it down further, here's data from the University of Guelph, we find that the materials on the course e-reserves, the majority of those materials come from site licenses, unsurprisingly. The next largest uh, chunk comes from open access. It's once you get further down into the smaller parts, whether you get fair dealing or you, or you get into the transactional licenses. That's the reality of the Canadian experience today. Let me wrap up just quickly by talking about what does all this mean from a Canadian perspective or an Australian perspective, what lessons might we draw? And just very quickly, I'd note five. First, I think current evidence is critically important. We talk often about the need for evidence-based policy making. Too often, and it happens in my country as well, too often much of the analysis is based on either data data uh, or a particular one point that attracts or a number that attracts a whole lot of attention without the ability to drill down more effectively into what is actually happening and it is critically important for all stakeholders to ensure that they make that information available. We've seen the universities come to the table to do it. The copyright collectives surely must also be fully transparent, both in what they are collecting and in the way in which they distribute those uh, revenues to find out exactly what is taking place. Secondly, I think we are learning that the impact of open and greater choice, choice in this case in licensing, has a real-world impact. It is not either or. When the headline says 80% of licensing has disappeared, what it really should be saying is that 80% of one license has disappeared. But in the world of choice, where there are a myriad of other licenses available, that I would argue in many instances can better compensate authors and publishers. Site licenses or transactional licenses hold out the promise of actually being far more effective in terms of ensuring that authors are actually paid for their work because now you have a direct correlation between what is being used and what is being paid for, as opposed to putting it into a large bucket and guessing as to what is being used and getting a bit of a handout as part of that. Plus, if you take a look at what's contained in many of those ebook licenses, they are books that are oftentimes much older than simply 20 years. So whereas the access copyright license pays nothing for those works, Site licenses actually continues to compensate authors and publishers for them um, because they're part of that license payment. As I mentioned earlier, from a pure value proposition, it makes far more sense to pay for both access and reproduction than reproduction alone. If all you have is to say, we will allow you to copy what you already have, that doesn't work nearly as well when you're an institution that is buying access at the same time in a digital format and gaining the rights to make it further available as well. Critically important to recognize this notion that you can't have fair dealing or we're close to fair use in terms of some of that flexibility coexist with licensing is simply wrong. The reality, the experience that we have had in Canada is that you can have fair dealing, indeed a flexible fair dealing approach, and at the same time you can certainly have all kinds of licensing opportunities because in fact what you end up with are institutions that take their obligations seriously, engage in real-world assessments about what's being used, and ensure that they, they, they obtain the necessary permissions, whether by way of transactional licenses, site licenses, or the myriad of other mechanisms that one can make use of it. Which leads me to what I think is certainly counter to the kind of things that one hears sometimes, 
But I would make the argument that we are far from being a country in, in, in terms of looking at our legal approach to these issues that ought to be an example of what not to do. I would, would with respect, argue that we are an example of what ought to be emulated. What the government wanted in 2012 was to help facilitate the shift to digital. Better pedagogical outcomes, a better educated country, uh, one in which they found new mechanisms and new ways to ensure that there was both compensation and better forms of access using the latest kinds of technologies. That's what we got. Thanks very much for your attention. A video version of this talk is available on YouTube. The report on Canadian copyright is expected before the House of Commons breaks for the summer. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.